Good morning. If you could change something about yourself, what would it be? If you could take a magic pill that would transform you in one way, what would be that way? It's an interesting question. Someone who wished that he had a magic pill that could transform him was one of Jesus' closest disciples, Peter. Peter thought he was a good man, he was a faithful man, but he had an experience that gave him a reflection of who he was at his core, and what he saw broke his heart. Uh, the night that uh, Jesus was betrayed, the night before his crucifixion, he was with his disciples, they were having dinner, and he explained to them that he was going to be betrayed, he was going to be crucified, buried, but that he would rise from the dead three days later, and that they could find him in Galilee, which was the land in the north that they had all come from. Now, when Jesus said this, what he told them basically was, you're all going to leave me. You're all going to betray me. In my darkest moment, you're all going to run. And so the disciples said, no, not us. We're going to stay with you. We won't leave you. We're going to be right there beside you. Peter, who was kind of the leader of the group, he said, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same thing. Oh, we're going to be with you, Jesus. We're committed. I mean, after all, they had left everything. They had followed him and lived with him for three and a half years. But an hour later, maybe a couple hours later, they're in this garden right outside of Jerusalem. And Jesus is praying for the strength he's going to need to face his crucifixion. He tells his disciples to stay awake and pay attention because he knows that there are soldiers coming to arrest him. But when Jesus comes back after about an hour of prayer, he finds his disciples and they're all asleep. Even Peter. Jesus says to them, couldn't you men keep watch for one hour? He asked Peter, the one who said he would die for Jesus. Even Peter had fallen asleep. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? Then he told them to watch and pray. Pay attention. Stay awake so that you will not fall into temptation. Because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Those are profound words. That's a deep diagnosis of a problem in the heart of every human being. Our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. Well, they did run. The soldiers came to arrest Jesus, and all of his disciples took off. They left him, just like he said they would. But Peter followed at a distance, and Jesus was taken to this high priest's house, this religious leader's house, where they beat him, and they had this mock you know, trial that was, they brought fake witnesses. And Peter's there in the dark, watching and people start to recognize Peter. They say, hey, I know you. You're Peter. You're one of the disciples of Jesus. And he said, no, not me. I don't know the guy. And he denied Jesus three times. Luke records what happened. He says, Peter answered this man who accused him of being a disciple of Jesus. Man, I don't know what you're talking about. And at once, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned around. The Lord Jesus spun around and locked eyes with Peter. And at that moment, Peter remembered what the Lord had said to him. Before the rooster crows tonight, before 4 a.m. this morning, you will say three times that you don't know me. Peter realized that at this key moment, he had compromised. He had failed. He had abandoned and betrayed Jesus. And it says that he went out and he wept bitterly. It absolutely broke his heart. Guilt and shame and regret overwhelmed him. Have you ever experienced this in your life? Have you ever let somebody down? Have you ever had these kinds of moral failures, compromised your integrity, done what you never thought you'd do, say what you didn't think you were going to say, or maybe not do what you should have done? 
all of us know the guilt and the shame and the sense of regret that comes from moral failure. What happened to Peter? What happened to the 12? Were they lying to Jesus? Did they say, we'll be with you, but they were lying? No, they didn't lie. They failed. At the moment of truth, they caved. They compromised. Because there was something deeper, a problem inside of them that they didn't even understand. Jesus understood it. He said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We all want to be good. We want to do what's right. We all want to live up to our moral standards, have a clear conscience, live with integrity. But it's hard. And the real question is, how do you become a good person? We, we have all sorts of answers to the question, who is a truly good person? Every civilization, every culture has a list of answers. And they're very similar. There's a lot of overlap. You know, you're loving, you're just, you're kind, you're generous. You can come up with a list of the good people. But that's not the problem. The problem isn't knowing what you ought to do. Everybody knows what they ought to do. The problem is you can't make yourself do it. You can't change yourself. How do you become, how do you transform into a truly good person? So we do our best. We make New Year's resolutions, but only 9% of us actually fulfill our New Year's resolutions. We, we make promises to people. I promise I'll never do that again. I'm going to change. And we commit. We buy the scale. We tear up the credit cards. We set the alarm clock. You know, we're going we're gonna to work harder. We're really going to do something this, this time differently. We have addictions in our lives that we try to break. Bad patterns in our life that we try to change. But we keep falling back into the same moral failures. And then there are people in our lives who are like Peter to us. They betray us. They hurt us. And we think, when are they going to change? When are they going to get their act together? When are they going to stop doing this to me? But when we say that, we condemn ourselves because we do the same to them and to others. We see our world. We see our world is, is morally failing. It's broken. We don't have to survey the Me Too movement and all the corruption economically and politically and all the evil regimes in history. It doesn't take long to show that society and the human race... Something inside of them is broken morally. So what would you change about yourself if you could? What would you use that pill to transform? These are hard questions. And so the human race has tried to come up with fixes to our moral failures. And it's funny because if you look at all of history, you'd think there'd be just millions of different fixes to moral failure, right? Because there's so many different cultures and all cultures are different. So there should be lots of different answers to the question, how do you fix moral failure in human beings? But there's not. Because we're one human race. One race of mankind. And whether you're Persians or Greeks or Romans or Celtics fans, you're all human beings. Your nature is the same. And so wherever you look, in the ancient world or the modern world, the fixes we put our faith in to fix our moral failure are always the same. And they all fail. None of them change us into the kinds of people we want to be. The kinds of people that don't cave at the moment of truth like Peter. So what are the fixes that we put our faith in? Well, to show us just how bankrupt we are, how lost we are, God sliced off a piece of humanity, the nation of Israel. He took a piece of humanity and made this nation his personal people. And through them, he was going to demonstrate to the whole human race in a case study of the human condition. He was going to show us what's really true about us. And Israel would go and try all the fixes we put our faith in to make us better. And each time Israel would fail. And in looking at the nation of Israel and their history, 
we would see a reflection of ourselves. In them, we see ourselves. So I'd like us to survey some of the fixes we put our faith in, things we think will change us and make us good, and how through the case study of the nation of Israel, we see that those fixes fail. The first is willpower. In America today, we talk about working hard, doing your best, give it your all, right? Just self-discipline. Be strong. You know, just buck up. (laughs) Willpower. You want to see some people with willpower? You want to see some disciplined people? Look at the Israelites that lived with Jesus in the first century. Look at the Pharisees. These guys were super disciplined. Fasting. They they, They memorized the Bible. I mean, these guys were hardcore disciplined people. And they crucified Jesus. Now, I don't care what your definition of moral failure is. If you murder God, that's definitely a moral failure. So here you have this super disciplined group of people. And what do they do? Their heart is full of murder and jealousy and selfishness and bitterness. And they killed God. Self-control doesn't work. Self-control is like holding your breath. Now, I used to be a swimmer and I could hold my breath for a while, but I'd always have to come back up and get air. I'd always have to let go. And get a breath. And that's how self-discipline is. We do our best. We try to change. But circumstances and our own weaknesses, they always overpower us. I went to a swim meet recently. My wife took me to uh, the U.S. national team had a swim meet in Irvine on Wednesday. And for my birthday, she took me. I, I was a swimmer in college. I swam. And these are the best swimmers in the world. These are Olympics. Olympic swimmers. People you saw on television in 2016. And they are so fast, and they are so fit, and they're so disciplined. I mean, talk about discipline. If anybody should have willpower, right, it would be these swimmers. Well, when you're a swimmer, one of the things you learn when you're a little bitty kid is you don't breathe into the wall. When you take those last five strokes, you've got to put your head down. You've got to kick as hard as you can. You've got to pull as hard as you can. Because if you breathe, it's dragging you. It's slowing you down, and it can cost you the race. It was amazing to watch these swimmers because heat after heat, race after race, I would see people who were ahead and they would lose the race at the last moment because they breathed the last five strokes. They would breathe. They would compromise. They would cave. Why? Didn't they know they weren't supposed to breathe? Of course they did. They're swimmers. Didn't they want to not breathe? Of course they did. They wanted to. They're swimmers. But they couldn't. Like Jesus says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And even the most disciplined among us, the greatest swimmers in the world, in the moment of truth, they can't overcome. They don't have the willpower. They can't make it happen. And that's true for us. Willpower doesn't work. It won't fix the moral failure. Something else that we put our faith in to fix the moral failure is displays of divine power. If God would just help me, you know, God, this one time, man, if you just, this, if you could just give me this one thing, I promise I'll never do that again. Or I promise I'll start doing this. You ever done that, the Hail Mary prayer? Please, God, please. We think that if this, if it just God would just show up and he could just show us that he's real, you know, rip the sky back and manifest himself, well, then I'd believe. You know, I just I don't have any evidence that God believes, or I'm sorry, that, that uh, God exists. If I just, if God could just, you know, if he could just give me this one thing, if he could just do this one thing, then I could, I could, my life would be good and I could finally act the way I'm supposed to. But this solution is not a fix. Consider the nation of Israel. Here's three and a half million people. It's 1250 B.C. They're all enslaved to Egypt. They're waiting for the day when God's going to save them, set them free, and they can worship God and be good and do all the things they want to be, but they can't be because they're slaves. 
So God sends them Moses, a deliverer. And Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go and let them worship God. And Moses says, no. So God strikes Israel with plague after plague after plague. Miracles. I mean, he, he turns a river into blood. He darkens out the sky. He brings fire down from heaven. Now, there are millions of Egyptians, and they are watching this. They are seeing this. This is a manifestation, a manifestation of divine power. God is literally doing miraculous things before their eyes. They don't turn. They don't change. They don't believe. And the Israelites, they're no better. God delivers them from Egypt, and the entire time they complain, and they sin, and they betray him, and they turn their back, and they just keep saying, can we go back to Egypt? I want my onions. I had onions in Egypt. Can I, can I go back to Egypt so I can eat my onions? No joke, that's what they said. The Israelites, the Egyptians, they saw displays of God's power. They saw miracles, and that didn't turn them. That didn't fix them, because our problem is deeper something we don't understand about ourselves. So we put our faith in circumstances. Changing our circumstances, that will change us. God, you know, it's just, if I could just have a little bit more money, if I could just have a better job, you know, if if I didn't have this boss or this teacher, if, if my parents were better, if my spouse was better, if I could just get married or have kids, if I could just get to retirement, then I could do the things I'm supposed to do. Then I could be good. Then I could be free to do the good things that I know I should. If I could just change my circumstances. So we put our faith in that fix. And that fix fails. Look at Israel. God took them from slavery and made them free. They were poor. He made them rich. They were insecure. And God protected them. And did that change them? Nope. God delivered them through the Red Sea. He actually parted a huge body of water. And they walked through it to a land that was Flowing with milk and honey. That's how the Bible describes it poetically. Flowing with milk and honey. I don't even know what that means, but that sounds good. Right? Flowing with milk and honey. Houses they didn't build. Vineyards they didn't plant. Wow. Talk about circumstance change. And what do they do? They worshiped the golden calf. They sacrificed their children to demons. They betrayed one another. They murdered one another. They kept failing morally. Their circumstances changed, but they didn't change because our problem is deeper. It's something we don't understand about ourselves. And so we think, well, education might do it. Education will end the moral failures in our society. If we just had better education, better moral training, right? If we brought the Ten Commandments back to school and prayer back into school, well, then everything would get better. If we just teach our kids what's right and wrong, good and bad, well, then they'll they'll straighten up and they'll live right. If we just had more moral instruction and better examples on television, then we would be good. No. Consider the slice of humanity, Israel, that God uses as a case study to teach the human race that this solution won't fix us. What happened? God delivers them from Egypt, and he gives them the greatest moral instruction anybody's ever received. He gave them his moral standards, his law. The Ten Commandments, right? Don't murder, don't steal, don't covet, don't commit adultery. What did they do? They did it all. They broke it all. They broke all the commandments. So God gave them more laws, and they broke those. And he gave them more laws, and they broke those. In the end, God gave them 613 laws that governed every part of life. And they broke them all. No external code, no moral instruction, no example, no great man is going to fix What's broken in our hearts is going to fix the moral failure inside of us. Because our problem is deeper. 
It is something that the human race clearly does not understand. And so our last hope is in politics. Ah, politics. If only Obama was our president again. Trump's going to make America great again. Who's he going to put on the Supreme Court? If we just had the right economic system, you know, if we just had more free markets, then everybody would have what they need and, and they would stop stealing and hurting each other. If we just had a more socially just economic system, maybe socialism, then everybody would be taken care of and nobody would have to steal from one another and hurt one another and everything would be great. We just need just laws and the right leadership and then our society would heal and we'd be good and everybody would have their piece of land. It's the communist dream. And then you look at the 20th century, the bloodiest, darkest century in human history. Yeah, it didn't work, did it? But we didn't have to experiment in the 20th century. We could have just looked at Israel. They were the experiment. They were the case study for the human race to teach all of us the truth about ourselves and what won't fix the problem. So what happened? God gave them David. Talk about a king. We could do a whole message on the moral virtues of this man. He was a great guy. God gave them this great king, and even this guy failed. Because he, like us, like Israel, like all people, something inside of him is broken, and he can't fix it. And so he saw a woman, someone else's wife. She was beautiful. He wanted her. So he seduced her, got her pregnant, and then he covered it up by murdering her husband, David, the greatest king Israel ever had, one of the greatest political leaders the world has ever seen, had blood on his hands. This is not a solution. This won't fix the moral failing at the core of human beings. So after all the wisdom of mankind is spent, after all our best efforts fail, we see how hopeless and lost we are as a race, the human race. Israel had more going for them than any nation that ever Existed. God personally directed and protected, provided and corrected them. He didn't do that with the Greeks. He didn't do that with the Persians. He didn't do that with the Chinese. At that time, he focused his grace, his power, his work on this one nation. They should have changed. And in the end, they spiraled morally, just like we're doing as a society, just like we do in our lives. And God raised up Assyria and the Babylonians to destroy their kingdom. And to take them back into slavery where they started. They started in slavery and they ended in slavery. If they couldn't change, if these fixes didn't fix them, what hope is there for us? There is no hope for us. There's no hope for you. You cannot change yourself. There's nothing outside of you that can change you. Because the problem is deeper, it's more complex than we understand And that's what Israel shows us. They tried the best human solutions, and they all failed. Something good happened after that. God raised up prophets. These were men who spoke for God, and God foretold a time when he would fix the real problem at the heart of humanity. And that problem isn't the mind, it's not the circumstances, it's the heart. The heart is the problem. Our hearts... Our wills, our spirits, the core of who we are is infected with sin. We want to do what's wrong. It's not only sin. Human beings aren't only bad. We were created in the the image of God and his divine goodness 
is still in us, but the painting has been torn. It's been vandalized. It's been cracked. And inside of us is something else. It's a force. It's a power. It's something else that's stronger than even our willpower. It's sin. The selfishness, the pride, the violence, the malice, the jealousy, the greed, the lust, the deception, all of it bubbles up inside of each and every human being because all the human race is infected with sin. And the heart is the reason why we can't change because we can't change our hearts. And so God sends his prophets and he tells of a time in the future where he personally will fix us. After the wisdom of man is spent and all of our best effort is shown to be total folly, God promises that he will fix what's truly broken. And so he sends one of his prophets, a man named Ezekiel. And Ezekiel said some of the most beautiful words that I've ever heard. Some of the most beautiful and hopeful words ever spoken. Here's what he says. God speaking through Ezekiel says, for I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your land. I will sprinkle you clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities, from all your moral failings, from all the selfishness and pride and violence and greed, and from all your idols, all the things you love more than me. How will God do this? How will he fix our hearts? He tells us, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone, this unresponsive and dead heart that doesn't love me, that doesn't know me, that isn't responsive to me. And I will give you a heart of flesh, soft, alive, responsive to God. And I will put my spirit in you, my Holy Spirit, I will put in you. And then I will move you to follow my decrees and I will make you careful to keep my laws. This is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. I remember when I first read it. Even then I knew what God was saying. I had tried to change so many times. Before I was a Christian, I was enslaved to drugs and alcohol. I was violent. I betrayed the people closest to me. I burned my life down. But long before that, I tried to change. There were all sorts of things I tried to stop doing. And I couldn't. I'd get a week, I'd get two weeks, and I'd fall back in. And I remember reading this, and I knew exactly what God was saying. He was saying he was going to change me. He was going to change me. That's the hope that God gives his people, the Israelites, and all of humanity through this man, Ezekiel. And 500 years passed, and no Holy Spirit, no new heart, until in the fullness of time, God sent his son, Jesus. And Jesus is the one who transforms the heart of the human race. He's the one who gives us the Holy Spirit. He's the only one who can fix the moral failure in our life. And that's why we hope and trust only in Jesus. And so Jesus comes to his disciples and he teaches this truth in a parable. Hey, we got to the parable. 25 minutes in, we're finally at the parable. The sermon series is called Parables and we're... We're definitely going to get there. So what was the parable? The parable Jesus told his disciples was in Mark 4.26. He said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and he rises night and day. And the seed sprouts and it grows. 
He knows not how. He doesn't know how it's happening. The earth, all by itself, produces the grain. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. What's he talking about? He's talking about transformation. He's talking about this problem that we've been looking at so far. He's talking about moral failure. He's talking about the part of us that we can't change. And what he's saying is that God is the one who has to transform us. God is the one who has to speak. We have to hear his words. God is the one who has to push that into our hearts. And then all by himself, God will begin to change us. All by himself, God's spirit begins to transform us. The farmer doesn't do it. He can take a lounge chair. He can sit down and stare at the ground. And nothing happens. At least nothing he can see. But something is happening. All by itself, the earth is germinating and making that seed grow. And all by himself, God's Holy Spirit is transforming his people inside. And sometimes you go with your, as a Christian, you live your life and, and there's, no, there's no change. What's different? Just like the seed, God is working in the soil. Jesus is saying that if you want to transform, if you want to become different, You have to let God transform you. God is the one who has to do it. So how does God transform us? What does that look like? What is this promise of a new heart and a new spirit? What does it mean and how does it work? I'd like to look at that for the rest of our time. If God must transform me, then that means that God must give me first his word. God has to speak. God has to tell me the truth about who he is and who I am. He has to show me, give me my diagnosis. He has to make clear to my eyes and my mind exactly what's wrong in me. And he has to tell me how to fix it. God has to act. If he doesn't act, I can't respond. If he doesn't act, I'm lost. And God has acted. God has given us his word. He's given us his son. And God's given us his spirit. God is going to change us if God gives us faith. The Holy Spirit actually gives us faith. The Holy Spirit enables us to believe in Jesus and recognize him as the savior of the human race. Recognize him. As the one who can save us. We don't do that on our own. We don't use our rational mind to figure it out. The Holy Spirit has to give us faith to even believe in Jesus. And that's what Paul writes to the Corinthians. He says no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Even faith in Jesus is a gift of God through his Holy Spirit. Now my, when I became a Christian, my friends, they told me that they had been praying for me for a long time. And they had been sharing God with me for a long time. And I didn't change. And that was because I didn't have faith in Christ. But then a day come when God gave me faith in Jesus. There are people in your life, people you want to come into a relationship with God, to experience his love and grace in their lives. You love them and you want this for them. You can't make it happen. You can't make them believe. No one says Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. That spirit that he promised 500 years earlier, that spirit which would give us a new heart, That spirit is essential for transformation. No Holy Spirit, there is no hope of change for anyone, anywhere, anytime. And so we have to pray for people in our lives that we love. We have to pray that God would open their eyes and open their hearts. They did for me, and there was a day when God gave me faith to believe. Something else that God has to do is he has to give me desires that I don't have to do his will. So Paul writes to the Philippians, he says, it is God who works in you. It's not you who work in you. 
It's not your family and your friends. It's not the moral code. It's not circumstances. It is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. God gives you desires that you don't have. You ever been in a situation where you know what you should do, but you don't want to do it? The thing you shouldn't do, that's what you want to do? At that moment, where's the desire going to come from? If you have the Holy Spirit, if you have the heart of God in you, he will give you the desires you need. And then he will give you the power to act on them. That's the only hope. Willpower will not save you. The Holy Spirit will give you desire and power to act. And so we have to pray. As Christians, all the time, when we face temptation, we face sin, we know what we're about to do. We have to stop and say, God, I want to sin, but I don't want to want to sin. Would you change my wanter? Would you give me different desires? Your spirit lives in me. Give me your desires. And God will. He will, he will give you his desires. Something else God has to do is he has to give us power. He has to give us love and self-control. So Paul writes to his protege, Timothy, he says, For the spirit that God gave us is not a spirit that makes us timid. God's spirit doesn't make us weak. The Holy Spirit is a spirit of power when we're weak, love when we're cold, when we can't forgive, when we're feeling bitterness, and self-control. You need self-control? I'm not going to ask you to hold your hand up. But if I asked this room, how many of you need more (laughs) self-control? Right? Where's that going to come from? You're going to... Make it happen like a good American. Good luck with that. Israel tried that. Didn't work. But God's spirit will give you self-discipline. God himself has self-control. And he will pour it into you if you want it. And you come to Jesus to get it. That's the truth that God is sharing with us. Something else God has to do is he has to give us his moral character. He has to transform us. All of us want to be virtuous. All of us want to be good. How do we do it? The answer is we have to receive the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit will actually grow in us new moral qualities, his moral qualities. God is a person, and he has a moral character, and it is perfect. And God created us to reflect him and to be just like him in his moral perfection. But the human race has sinned, and we've shattered the image of God in us. And now sin infects and overpowers all in our life. So God has sent his son Jesus to give us his spirit and to rebuild us from the inside out and to grow the moral qualities that we were supposed to have through his Holy Spirit. And if you accept the spirit of God, God will begin to transform you morally. So here's the list. Galatians 5, 22 through 23. God says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These qualities are God's qualities. And when he plants his spirit in you, he begins to grow them in you. Who doesn't want to be this way? Look at that list. Which one of those things would you change? Would you add to yourself if you could? If you could take a magic pill and change one thing about you, which one of those things do you need more of? How are you going to change? The Holy Spirit can change you. Only the Holy Spirit can change you. And one of the most encouraging verses in the New Testament is from Paul, where he says that God has to start the work. God has to continue the work. And God has to complete the work of transformation. And so writing to the church in Philippi, Paul says something amazing. Now, here's Paul. Paul is this guy who started churches in the first century. He's a Christian. He goes all around the Mediterranean Ocean starting churches. He gives his whole life to it. 
I mean, he loves these people. He pours his life out for these people. He basically has little spiritual children. And then he's arrested. He's put in prison. And he has to watch from a distance as all the churches that he's planted come under attack, face persecution. Now, if that was me, I would be so stressed out. I'd be grabbing those bars. I got to get out of here. I got to help my people. But Paul's not like that. Why isn't Paul stressed out? He's in prison and all the churches are being attacked. Why isn't he stressed out? He tells us. In Philippians 1, 3 through 1, 6, Paul says, I thank God every time I remember you in all my prayers. And I always pray with joy, not stress, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And then he says, being confident, I have confidence in this, that he who began a good work in you, that God who planted his spirit in you, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God is the one who makes the seed grow. God's the one who transforms our character. And God is promising to complete the work he begins in us. And that was Paul's confidence. There are people in our lives, and we think, when are they going to change? God is the one who can change any person. With us, it's impossible. With God, it's, it's all possible. So what do I do? Like, what's my part? What should I do? Well, that's not what Jesus is teaching us here. He's not telling us what we need to do. Of course, there's a part we play in working out our salvation, and we'll look at that next week. But for this week, what Jesus wants us to see is that it's most important that God does something. God is the one who has to transform us. But some things you can do in response is you can praise and thank God. You can just tell God how grateful you are and how awesome he is. My wife was telling me that recently she was listening to a message, and the the pastor asked the people, when is the last time you just prayed? And just praise God for what he's done in your life, how he's transformed you so far. And just thank him for what he does and what he's doing and what he will do. That's a really good response to the grace of God that we see. Something else that God uh, would have us do is he'd have us confess sin. Admit to God that we see and we agree that there are problems and there's sin in our life and it's got to change. We need his help to transform us. We need God to come in and make changes that we can't make. And when we see the sin in our lives and we tell God, you're right, this is not where I need to be. I want to be this person, but I can't be. Then the response is not to try harder. So many people try harder. And that's like holding your breath. What do we do? If God is the most important factor, if his spirit is essential to our transformation, then what we do is we ask him to transform us more and more. We say, God, I... I, I hear what you're saying. I agree with it. I want it. It's good, but I can't change. Would you please take this weakness in me and would you transform it? Would you cure me? Would you heal me? Would you help me be like Jesus in this area? That is the response of a Christian who has the spirit of God in him. It's a tandem relationship where you ask God to continue to work in you through his spirit. And the final thing we can do is we can scatter seed. The farmer scatters seed and the seed is the word of God. We have to figure out what is it that God has said about every area of life. What has God said about how he wants us to be? Who is he transforming us into? And we scatter the seed by taking our bag of seed, the Bible, and we read it. And we try to understand it. And we try to figure out what is it that God would have us do? What would he have us be in each and every area of our life? How would he have us handle our responsibilities? How would he handle us? How would he have us deal with authority, exercising it and following people? What does God say about your goals? All of us have goals, secret destinations in our heart, places we want to live, things we want to have, jobs we want to have. Oftentimes we keep those secret. We don't let people know the true motives of our heart. What is God's goal for your life? What does he want your life to be 
about? What, what does he want you to orbit your life around? What about your attitudes? What attitude does God want you to adopt? What about your relationships, your words, the way you handle your time and your money? How does God want you to make decisions? You're going to face hardships. How does God want you to deal with hard things? What does God say about every area of life? Scatter the seed. And the Spirit of God will take that seed and he'll make it grow. This is the message. This is the meaning of this parable. This is the good news that we have as Christians, that we share with the world. We get to tell people about the grace of God. We get to love them and serve them and share God's word with them. And then they can come into a relationship with God. And he can transform them the way he's transforming us. It's not us. We're not doing it. We don't get the credit for any good in our lives. God gets all the glory. And we just want to share this good news with people. So consider some next steps you can take to respond to the grace of God. If you take out your connection card or you look at your program, you'll see some next steps. And I would encourage you to circle one of these and decide that you're going to do that this next week. The first step you can take to respond to the grace of God is if you're not a Christian, if you've never decided to follow Jesus Christ, if you are convinced, if you have enough evidence, if if the Holy Spirit has worked in you and you know that this person is who he says he is, he is the Savior, he is the one you need to follow, he is the one who can transform you, then confess your sin to him. Decide to make him your Lord and ask him to give you his spirit. We would love to help you do this. When I became a Christian, people helped me do that. And if you would like some help, if you'd like to meet with somebody and talk through what it means to become a Christian, just let us know in the connection card. No pressure. We'll meet with you, give you answers to your questions, and help you if that's what you'd like. Something you can do if you are a Christian is you can just take 10 minutes each day, maybe in the morning or at night or as you drive to work, and just praise God. Find your favorite worship song, turn it up, and sing. Praise God. Thank God for what he's doing in your life. That fire, that faith, it grows as we praise God. It empowers us. And God transforms us as we praise him. Something else you can do is scatter the seed in your life. Figure out what God says about an area of your life that you're caving in. An area of moral failure. What does God's word say about that? And then ask God to transform you. To give you different desires and different thoughts and different emotions. To give you his power to do his will and to become like him, like Jesus. And God will. He who began a good work in us will carry it on and complete it all the way to the day of Christ Jesus. Because God loves us and that is why he is solving our problem. He's fixing our moral failure. He's giving us his spirit. It's giving us his, he's giving us his spirit through his son Jesus. And that's the hope that we live with. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your your son, Jesus. I thank you that you sent him into this world. Lord Jesus, I thank you for choosing to die for us and taking our sins upon yourself, paying the penalty for our moral failure so that that crime, that list of offenses could be deleted, removed, and every barrier between us and you could be knocked down. And God, you gave us your spirit. You live inside of us. Your heart is our heart. It's in our heart. You give us your spirit and your power and your resources. Please continue to transform us. Please take this word and drive it into our hearts and show us how we can transform by your power into the people you want us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.